We'll open this morning with a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you giving you great praise and thanksgiving for the opportunity to come together as the body of Christ. We thank you for this great privilege and the fellowship that we have with one another. Thank you this morning, Lord, that we'll be partaking of communion to commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and may that ever be on our minds. Lord, thank you for the book of Daniel and the opportunity to discuss it and to look into what it says and to try and understand and gain knowledge. Lord, we admit that apart from the Holy Spirit illumining our minds and showing us the truth, that we will be desperate to understand it. But Lord, we understand that it was given for instruction, for teaching, for training, for reproof. All of these things the Word of God always does. And so we pray that you would use it to shape our minds and to shape our thinking about things that are yet to be, things that have happened in the past. And Lord, may as you direct our minds, may we then give you greater glory and praise for we see your sovereignty, we understand your plan, we understand that you're in total control, working all things to your good pleasure. And so for that insight, Lord, we give you thanks and praise, and may you be worshiped in our hearts this morning. May you be given glory and honor, for we pray in Christ's name, amen. This is our 50th week in the book of Daniel. So we've made it almost a year. And for several weeks now, we've been talking about the single verse found over in Daniel 9:26. And there's a lot in this verse, but we have been focusing our attention for the last couple of weeks on a particular aspect of it. And that is where Gabriel said to Daniel that um, this phrase, the people of the prince who is to come. And these people are important because these are the people who destroy Jerusalem and um, destroy the sanctuary or the temple. Um, the importance of these people is heightened in the next verse, verse 27, because these people, out of them, a prince arises um, that will be yet future. When Jesus Christ referred to the book of Daniel, it was yet future to his time that this prince would arise, and he referred back to it. Um, and this prince is the one who will make a covenant for the um, last period of sevens, the 70th week of the 70 weeks that have been decreed by God. And you remember that um, the Messiah comes after seven weeks and 62 weeks, so 69 weeks. The Messiah comes at the end of that and is cut off and has nothing, and the city is destroyed, and the sanctuary is destroyed. And then in the next verse, verse 27, you have the 70th week of Daniel um, with this prince arising, the prince of the people who destroy the city and the sanctuary. So th this is an important understanding, and we need to 
gain as much understanding about who these people are and who this prince will be as we can because it's really the the point of the message um, there's a lot of information in this message but this is the greatest point i believe out of this message therefore a good understanding of who the prince is and who the people are is pivotal to understanding all that's going on in daniel now we could talk about when the destruction of the temple took place or when will it take place and um, we could talk about that for a long time and there's people who agree and disagree and but we know this that it was after the time in which daniel was writing um, this book of daniel and the most obvious answer to the destruction of the temple is that destruction that took place in 70 a.d at the hand of the roman military and you know we've we've looked at how the book of daniel often can be interpreted in a relatively short term and then a longer term fashion and we saw that in chapter uh, seven we see it in chapter eight we'll see it in chapter 11 when we get there we see it here in chapter nine i believe that there's a short-term fulfillment and then there's ultimately a long-term fulfillment and all those long-term fulfillments all point to the book of revelation they all um, are summed up in the book of revelation they're completed there because there are many characteristics and we'll see this when we get to revelation that are in the book of daniel that show up again in the book of revelation a lot of the characteristics of the players the things they do the people who are involved all are repeated in the book of revelation and so we'll see that once we get over there and then, which is the reason that we're studying daniel first because there's a lot of linkage between the book of daniel and the book of revelation not total linkage but a lot and so when the romans destroyed the jerusalem and the sanctuary in 70 a.d that was basically an end to the jewish nation um, until may of 1948 when it was reinstituted so for uh what's that uh, 1800 years almost uh, 1900 years almost there was no jewish state they did not exist as a people. They were scattered in many different lands, um, some to the US, some to Europe, some into Asia Minor, some southward uh, down into the Arabian area. I mean, they were just scattered everywhere. And so there was no Jewish nation. And so when we talk about stopping sacrifices and grain offerings and that kind of stuff, that was defunct after 70 AD because there was no temple. There still is no temple. And there's never been another temple since the temple that Zerubbabel built and then the Romans expanded. And so we need to understand that perspective when we talk about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So I believe the short-term fulfillment, which was still, I mean, Daniel wrote this book in somewhere around 450 BC and the temple wasn't destroyed 
um, for another 600 or 550 years in 70 AD. So it was relatively, in the whole expanse of time, short, but still a good ways into the future. And yet there, I believe, is still yet a longer term fulfillment that again finds its fulfillment in the book of Revelation. So this is the, the tack that we've been taking as we've been trying to understand what is written in Daniel chapter 7. Um, last time we looked at, began to look at some extra biblical references, not so much to prove the scriptures are true or not true, that would never be the intent of looking at historical records, but to understand more about what actually took place than is given in the scriptures because um, God does not elaborate on who this prince is or who the people are. He just simply says they are yet to come. Um, but we have a lot of records of that destruction of the temple in 70 AD that are worthwhile looking at. Um, they will give us more information. Um, Daniel clearly didn't have this. The writers of the New Testament didn't have what we have today. But we have a record of what took place after those first church people were gone and had died off. We have good records of what took place, and so it would be right for us to look at those and to add them not to what was written in Daniel, but to gain greater understanding of what was written in Daniel. I believe this is um, why God gave us and preserved for us this message that he gave to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. And so it's been preserved. We ought to look at it and study it and try and gain understanding. Now, we looked at several references that have been written in the last 50 years, some that have been written in the last 25 years, about what people thought about the Roman army and what, who comprised the Roman army. And it's pretty well agreed that by the time you get to 70 A.D., at least 50%, and some would even go as far as 80% of the makeup of the Roman army was no longer people from Italy, but rather people from the provinces that Rome had captured the provincials. That these people would be selected um, in order to entice them to be loyal to the emperor, they would be given sometimes Roman citizenship. They would be given a lot of money. They would be given special privileges that other provincials didn't have. And so they would entice these fighting men, these mighty men, to join the Roman army. And, and the, the greater Rome became in land conquering, the more provincials they used to in their army. And that just makes sense because there weren't enough Italians to go around to fill all these armies. And so they used people from the provinces to do that. And so we looked at that last week. And we even looked at some writings um, out of um, the first century by a, name, a man named Tacitus 
who was, uh, wrote for the Roman emperor. He was commissioned by the Roman emperor. To, emperor. He was a great oratory, um, skilled in oratory, and also in writing. He was trained for this, and he wrote, he was alive when 70 AD took place. He was a teenager, but nevertheless, he was alive, and he wrote a little later um, about what took place, not only in that uh, war between the Jews and the Romans, but all the wars back to the beginning of Rome, and then those that came later also, and up until the time when he died, obviously. And so he wrote this history of the Roman conquest, and we looked at a couple of things that he said, but he even wrote that uh, not just some of the soldiers of the Roman army, but some of the leaders of the soldiers came from the provincials and were very skilled and very young and promoted to be equal with some of the older men who had been in the Roman Empire and in the Roman army for a long time. And so they, the further they went, the more they began to use provincials even to control the army and to lead the army. And that would just make sense because these guys would know the customs and the people who were um, serving in the army. And so um, Tacitus wrote about that. We saw one place where he wrote about the um, legion that was out of Syria where they would stand up every morning and give uh, homage to the sun because the Syrians worship the sun. And so it's very clear that most of the people in that legion were, uh, were Syrians and were not Italians because they gave homage to the sun. And so we have a lot of this kind of evidence of who made up the Roman army. And it's important because it's that Roman army that destroyed Jerusalem and the sanctuary. And so that prince who is to come is associated with those people. And I believe this is the linkage that links who those people are both in the near-term and the long-term fulfillment of what is written in Daniel. So we began talking about these things. There's an, and we talked about um, a Jewish historian, just began to introduce him you know his name is Josephus, and Josephus a little older than Tacitus, but was also alive at the, uh, in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And like Tacitus, Josephus wrote not just about his own experience in the wars and all that was taking place during his lifetime, but he went all the way back to Antiochus Epiphanes, and wrote about what had taken place then and up until his, his time. And if you think about that, that's not so strange. That would be like you and I writing about the Civil War. Because that's, a, you know, the um, Antiochus Epiphanes, second century BC, here um, you have um, Josephus writing in first century AD, so about 150, 200 years after 
that war had taken place. So it'd be like you and I writing about the Civil War. And certainly there are a lot of records we could go back, a lot of um, diaries that people kept, a lot of what letters that were being written back and forth um, during that time, and would use that as evidence. Well, that's what Josephus did in writing about Antiochus Epiphanes and all that took place up until his time. Now, he, he is somewhat unique because the whole reason that Rome came against the Jews in 70 AD, it actually started in 67 AD, was because the Jews were rebelling, re, rebelling against Rome. And they were rebelling because of all things, heavy taxation and uh, impoverishment of the Jewish people because of the taxation. It sounds familiar to our own country's founding. Uh, rebelling against um, these heavy taxes. And so in that rebellion, the Jewish priests actually got together military leaders and sent them into the countryside to fight against the Roman you know, contingents that were there. There wasn't an army there, but there certainly was occupation there. And so that triggered a war that really began in 67 AD. And in that war, Josephus was one of the people commissioned by the priests to go and lead the military. So he actually fought in this war against the Romans up until the time when, he, when his contingency was defeated and he was captured. And they decided to keep him alive and to use him to try and persuade the Jews to surrender. They sent him to the walls of Jerusalem when they had begun their siege in order to convince the Jews that they would be better off giving up. Of course, he was unsuccessful in that, but he does write in his own history of himself about those times and what happened and what he said and what the response was. And so he is very unique in his perspective and in what he wrote. Um, clearly, it's biased toward the Jews. Um, if you were a Jew, you would be biased toward the Jews. Um, and so he was, just as Tacitus was biased toward the Romans. But nevertheless, they intersect at a lot of points that you can pretty much take as factual when you've got one guy writing with his biases and another writing with his biases, and yet they say the same thing. At that point, you probably have the truth. And so that's what I want to kind of look at this morning. Now, Josephus wrote a series of books, not just one book, but a series of books, and each was titled by the time frame in which it covered. Um, so his book one was from the history from Antiochus Epiphanes taking Jerusalem to the death of Herod the Great. So it's a long time that it covers, but so it covers not only Antiochus Epiphanes, but in Herod's 15th year is when he began to expand the temple that we know is being destroyed in 70 AD. So it's all the same temple. It's the temple that Zerubbabel built 
and then Herod expanded, expanded it to the place where its footprint was twice the original footprint. He built new walls around this, uh, the temple, the sanctuary area, that were twice as big as what the Jews had done when they rebuilt the temple with Zerubbabel and the people who helped him. And so greatly expanded. And so that's his book one. His book two is from the death of Herod, Herod till Vespasian was sent to subdue the Jews by Nero. Now, not the actual subduing of the Jews, but from the time when Nero said, go put this down. And he gave that command to an older man, to a man named Vespasian, who was prominent in the Jewish nation, uh, had fought many wars before. He was the man who went into uh, Ger Germany and defeated those factions that were there that were uprising that gave Rome total control of the European area. And so because he had done that, Nero sent him to go and subdue the Jews. Now, um, as I said, the, this was all about taxes. It was a revolt about taxation. Um, so book three is entitled From Vespasian's Coming to subdue the Jews to the taking of Gamala. So it's more than just the war against the Jews. It's into other lands also, but it includes, it starts with the war against the Jews. Now, Vespasian had a son whose name was Titus, and he promoted his son to be a lieutenant in the Roman army. So have a lot of authority. And so he sent his son to Alexandria to bring back, to fight against the Jews, two Roman legions, the, the fifth and the tenth. And then Vespasian himself went into Syria to bring that army, that uh, legion out of Syria that we looked at previously that worshiped the sun to come and join these other two, le two legions. So you had three legions of the Roman military. Now a legion changed the number that was in it across the Roman history, sometimes more, sometimes less, but a good number to use would be 5,000 troops in a legion. So three legions would be um, 15,000 uh, Roman soldiers. Now, based on what we've looked at previously, that would be somewhere between uh, 5,000 and 7,500 Italians, with the others make, being uh, provincials. At, at the highest, I think it would have been 7,500. It's probably more like 5,000 or less of these 15,000. And then, um, so you, you've got those people, and Josephus wrote 
about when Vespasian went into Syria to get these people and to bring them back. And they all met up together, um, not in um, the Jewish land, but just outside of it in a city called Ptolemaeus, um, where all these troops gathered together and stationed so they could then march into Rome. But we have this quote out of Josephus. It comes from Book 3, Chapter 4, and Paragraph 2, and it's important because it tells us who went against the Jews in addition to people out of the Roman uh, army because there were a lot of them. He wrote, there was a considerable number of auxiliaries got together that came from the kings Antiochus, Agrippa, and Sohemes, each of them contributing 1,000 footmen that were archers and 1,000 horsemen. Malchus also, the king of Arabia, sent 1,000 horsemen besides 5,000 footmen, the greatest part of who were archers, so that the whole army, including the auxiliaries sent by the kings, as well as horsemen and footmen, when all were united together, amounted to 60,000 besides the servants, who as they followed in vast numbers, so because they had been trained up in war with the rest, ought not to be distinguished from the fighting men. For as they were in their master's service in times of peace, so they did undergo the, like, the like dangers with them in times of war, insomuch as they were inferior to none, either in skill or in strength, only they were subject to their masters. So in addition to these legions that were brought together, you have these auxiliaries, the kings of Arabia and the other areas of Syria sending their troops, 60,000 of their troops. Now we've got 15,000 out of the Roman army, of which maybe 5,000 to 7,500 are Romans, are Italians. Then you add to them 60,000 more people. So now you're at 75,000. And then in addition to those 60,000 that came out of those armies, came the servants of those men who comprised those armies that we don't know how many there were. He just says vast numbers. So we don't know. Maybe they brought another 60,000. I mean, we really don't know how many of them there were. And they had been trained in fighting also. And they were skilled. And they were strong. So you've got 15,000 Roman legion. You've got 60,000 of these other auxiliaries, and then you've got additional people on top of those that we don't know how many there were, probably at least 100,000 people encamped in Ptolemaeus to go against the Jews, of which at most 10,000, probably more like 5,000 are Italians. 
So something like 5% or 10% of this vast army are actually from Rome and are Romans themselves. Well, nine, yeah, and let's read it. I mean, 9.26 says, then after 62 weeks, meaning the 69th week, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end time, end there will be war, desolations are determined so the prince of the people who are to come and what do those people do they destroy jerusalem and the sanctuary that's the hundred thousand people we're talking about That's right, and, and that's the linkage, why I said, between the short-term fulfillment and the long-term fulfillment. It, because the people, this prince does not exist when the temple is destroyed. And that's clear because 26 and 27, 26 says the prince of the people who is to come, meaning the prince is not there, he's later. But these people... Of from which he will arise are the ones who destroy the temple and the sanctuary. Then later, this prince arises from them and makes a covenant for the 70th week. That's right. Well, and this is what we talked about. This had to be shocking to Daniel. I mean, the, the, the temple's not even built yet, and we're already talking about it being destroyed. And the Messiah hasn't come yet, but when he does, he's going to be destroyed. And you get, he's got to be going, What? Yeah. And you were you were expecting that to be the temple that was being referred to, and now all of a sudden it's it, there's not a stone left. Yeah. And you're thinking, wait a minute, do I have all my eschatology from Daniel wrong? Right, because and, and what the apostles taught them. And so those first century Jews fled, right? The dysphoria of the Jews. And from that point where all of a sudden nothing made sense. And most of them believed their Messiah hadn't come. And those who did believe the Messiah had come also fled. 
But from that point, over 2,000 years to where we are today, the Jews have absolutely given up on the concept of a Messiah. That just isn't in their eschatology. It's not in their teachings. It's just gone. Right. Well, well, and think about those first century Jews after the destruction of the temple, reading what Paul wrote in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about the restoration and the resurrection of the Jewish people. And they had to be going, what are you talking about? And because of that, the Jews have lost all hope in a Messiah. The only ones who still believe in the Messiah are the Orthodox, which are about 15% of the Jews left alive, are Orthodox. Those people are still looking for a Messiah. Those will be the ones that will see him when he returns and weep, realizing they had missed him. The rest have given up on that concept. Their goal as a Jewish person is to improve society. That's their stated purpose. Noble purpose, but it missed the purpose of God because his intention was never to improve society. Well, he's testing... For them and for us, do you believe what I said through Gabriel to Daniel? Is it true or is it not true? It is, and, and, and it's worthwhile to look at these things because you read the mainstream today and most believe that Daniel was written um, in the 2nd century B.C. and not the 6th century B.C. Because there's no way that chapter 11 could be true where he talks about all the specific people, and we'll get there, that came and lived and did exactly what's written in chapter 11. I mean, to a T, they did exactly what's written, and they go, no way. That had to be written after it happened. And quite frankly... Jesus Christ didn't think so because he referred to the abomination of desolation written in Daniel. So he believed that this book was authentic. I believe it's authentic. And if it's authentic, then it, you must be able to believe that it's true and that these prophecies are true. And just in the information we've looked at this morning, it becomes very obvious that while Rome it was done under the auspices of Rome, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It was not the Romans who did it. And we'll get more detail as we go deeper into Josephus about what the Romans did and what the auxiliaries did. That gives even more credence to the fact that it was not the Romans who destroyed the temple. It was the auxiliaries. And these auxiliaries were not Romans. And they weren't even in the Roman army. And they outnumbered the Roman army 
seven or eight or nine to one. Right. It's well. It's ethnicity. It's who your ancestors were. You know, not so much as what nation you came from, but your ethnicity. You know, the United States made up of a lot of different ethnic ethnic groups. Right. We all call ourselves Americans. That's what unites us. But a lot of different ethnic groups in the U.S from all over the world, the melting pot, right? Well, these people weren't like that. They were living in the land that their ancestors lived in, just like the Jews, when they went back to Jerusalem, were living in the land that their ancestors lived in. So too the Syrians, which is more than just Syria as we think of it today. It's really the nation of Assyria, which was vast and large and was ultimately, you know, these are the ones who took the northern ten tribes into captivity, never to be seen as tribes again until you get to what Ezekiel writes. So uh, this, there's just a lot, in my opinion, of evidence of who actually came against the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, Tacitus, you know, you need some intersection, right? You got the Jewish viewpoint, but then Tacitus writes something very similar to what Josephus writes. And again, he, like Josephus, wrote multiple books of the histories. This is in his last book of the history, book five. And it's found in paragraph uh, one of book five. He says, he, that pronoun refers to Titus, the son of Vespasian, the one who went to Alexandria to bring back two legions. It says, he found in Judea three legions, the fifth, the tenth, and the fifteenth. One of the, those are the three legions that we're talking about. All old troops of Vespasian. When Vespasian had led to conquer Germany, Germania, these were some of the guys who fought with him. To these he added the twelfth from Syria and some men belonging to the eighteenth and the third whom he had withdrawn from Alexandria. So not the whole legion, but just some of them. So three full legions plus parts of three other legions. This force was accompanied by twenty cohorts of allied troops and eight squadrons of cavalry by the two kings, Agrippa and Sohemus, by the auxiliary forces of King Antiochus, by a strong contingent of Arabs who hated the Jews with usual hatred of neighbors, and lastly, by many persons brought from the capital and from Italy by private hopes of securing the yet unengaged affections of the prince, meaning the emperor, meaning the leader of the Roman nation. So you have writings of Tacitus that say something very similar to what Josephus wrote. So you have the two greatest historians of their era 
writing with their own presuppositions, with their own biases, saying basically the same thing. This was a huge army. It was made up of people who were not Roman. So pretty good evidence that when Daniel, when Gabriel spoke to Daniel and said, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, we're not talking about Romans. We're talking about people out of the provincials, out of Arabia, out of Syria, out of Egypt, out of Northern Africa, out of other areas that the Romans had conquered that made up their army. And then they invited all these people who outnumbered them greatly to join them in going against the Jews. So, I mean, you look at this and you go, what chance did Jerusalem have, really? You got 100,000 plus people camped over in Ptolemais and they're going to march in and you're going to resist them? Really? 100,000 people? 100,000 fighting men? No chance. They never had a chance, which is why Josephus went to the wall and said, guys, look at the size of the army and you're going to resist? Took three years to take Jerusalem. But nevertheless, they took it. So Daniel could have written, when, or Gabriel could have said to him, instead of using people, he could have said the kingdom. Because that word has been used multiple times in the book of Daniel. The kingdom of Greece, the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, um, and so he could have used that word, and we would think differently about this, but he didn't. He didn't say the Roman kingdom or the Roman empire. He said the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and Jerusalem. Now, God knew who this was, right? It's not like this is catching him by surprise, but he chose not to tell us specifically who it is or who the people are. But we have pretty good evidence out of the historical record who the people were. Now, Josephus gives us even more. And that's where I want to go, if the Lord wills, the next time we get together. To see more, because he talks about the very destruction of the temple itself. And who did it and who tried to stop it. And we have those details. And so I want to look at those, and then we'll get back to what the, the scriptures say. But this, this information is valuable. This information is ignored by those who believe that this book is talking about a re restored European empire of Rome. They, they don't talk about these facts. They ignore them. You have to ignore them if you believe this is a restored Roman Empire. But if you don't, this is some of your support. Well, it's also helpful, David, when you read Matthew 24, you realize that the Lord is speaking, it's easily confused, the Lord is speaking to a very specific people. Yeah. Very clear 
that you sit in front of them. He's actually talking through Scripture and the Spirit of God that you should be alive at that point in which all those circumstances become Well, and a lot of people get confused because what Christ said was the generation in which this happens. And a lot of people say he was talking about the generation who was sitting and listening to him. But I believe that's not who he was talking about. He was talking about the generation that sees all the signs that he describes in Matthew 24. That generation will see this, not the generation who is listening to him. And if you remember, this is at the beginning of the Passion Week. This is Jesus Christ walking out of the temple and his disciples marveling at what Herod was doing to the temple. And Jesus looking to them and saying, not a stone will be left on a stone. And they're going, what are you talking about? And then he goes on in Matthew 24 to describe the great tribulation and having to flee out of Israel and, be, and, and go to the mountains and all the cataclysmic cosmos um, degradation that takes place in Matthew 24. That the Lord says, this is what Daniel wrote about. I don't, how can you miss that? Right. And, and that's so, so what do you have at that point? Because every believer is killed almost immediately. You have the scriptures and the Spirit of God say, look at what's unfolding right Yeah, and there will be a lot of people, and this gives you some hope, during the tribulation, who place faith in Christ and are martyred. Scores of them, the scripture says, in front of the throne of God, so that they could not be counted, that came out of the tribulation, meaning they're killed during the tribulation years. So there will be scores of people. You go, you know, will people believe when the church is raptured and all of a sudden where do they all go? Yeah, they will. A lot will. And then you also have the two witnesses who are marching around the earth for three and a half years saying, place faith in God. You got the angels in the midheaven saying, place faith in God. And that goes on for years and years. So yeah, there'd be a lot of people who give assent. Well, don't forget those two witnesses smoke people. <laughs> with the well, they're, they're given the right to defend themselves, and they do. So we'll look at all that, but the prince of the people the, who are to come. Who are those people? You've been given some information that you have to deal with today in your interpretation of what is given here in Daniel. So there is more yet to come if the Lord wills. So thanks for your time this morning.